So Edge uh, started in 2014. Um, our original company name was Airbits, and that was the name of the original product. It was just the Airbits Bitcoin wallet. And, you know, many people would say, oh, it's, you know, another mobile Bitcoin wallet. Back then, there were very few. I think we were maybe one of three or four that were available on iOS and one of, uh, like, less than half a dozen that were available on Android. And uh, at the time, just having anything on mobile was, was fairly unique. Um, but we still had one differentiating factor that really defined our company and also defines what Edge is today, which is the way we do key management. Key management being a very unique and different and much more forgiving process for the average end user while still being self-sovereign, retaining privacy and retaining that aspect of fully owning and controlling your funds. And so you'll notice that, especially back in 2014, to a strong degree today, uh, ownership of private keys falls under kind of two categories of product, the fully custodial and the fully, you know, this is very unfamiliar, back up your own private keys, write stuff down. And, you know, I've never done this before. This feels weird. And if I mess up, I've screwed up everything. There's no, nothing in the middle uh, between those two. And that was a focus of what we built at Airbits and we carry over into Edge, which is an interface that feels like one side, which is it feels like that custodial exchange, but at the same time gives you the privacy and autonomy of a true wallet. So people create what feels like regular accounts. They have password recovery capability, pin login, biometric login, um, and you have two-factor capability, which is even easier than most centralized services. You tap one button, you're two-factored. You have that functionality, yet at the same time, you know, there's no personal information gathered to create your account. There's no phone number, there's no email, and as well, all of the data in the account is client-side encrypted, so no one sees them but the end user. So you kind of take that, those two sides, you know, those two extremes of crypto, and blend it into one that feels both familiar yet still provides the true benefits of what Bitcoin was built for. That's what we built in, in the Airbits days. And it was focused around payments at the time. Uh, for those that might remember our old app Airbits, it had even had a built-in merchant directory to find where you could spend Bitcoin. You know, and people to this day, like, clamor for that. Like, oh, please bring back the merchant directory. Even though I didn't really use it, it was cool. It was cool to see. Uh, but obviously, we've, we've shifted to what the markets demanded and what the market has demanded, admittedly, is we're not in a payment area yet. We're not really in a utility era of crypto. People are still speculating on it. They're trading it. They're buying it, selling it, um, holding on to it. And so that's what we did when we migrated to Edge and launched the new product, which is now multi-asset friendly. So it obviously supports Bitcoin, Ethereum, tokens, Bitcoin Cash. We're all one of the few that supports also Monero, Stellar, XRP, Tezos, and a few others. Um, but it has extremely rich exchange functionality. So it lets you buy, sell, and trade and connect to many other backend exchange partners more than any other product on the market. Which, yeah. which exchange partners are those? Let's see if I can remember them because there's literally 16 of them. So, <laughs> Give um, us the biggest ones. You don't need to... So for crypto to crypto, crypto to crypto exchange, uh, Shapeshift, Changely, ChangeNow, Fox Exchange, Godex, uh, and Total, which is actually an aggregator of decentralized exchanges for ERC-20 tokens and Ether. So I'm probably missing a couple there. And then for fiat to crypto, we've got Wire for selling, buy and sell in the U.S., um, Simplex for credit card buy and sell in Europe, although buy at pretty much everywhere in the world. Um, another company called Banks, which covers Australia and soon to be released the U.K. as well for buy and sell with native Australia and U.K. bank transfer. Um, Biddy is a partner that covers all of Europe and uh, awesome integration with them because through our integration with them, people can buy Bitcoin up to $5,000 worth a day in Europe 
with no KYC at all. Oh wow! Not a phone number, not even not even a phone number, not a phone number, no email address. Um, just send money from your bank to you create an order inside of Edge, send money to their bank account, and then Bitcoin shows up inside your wallet usually within a few hours. And and there's no regulatory issues that you guys have to deal with based on offering that service. Nope. All of the services go through our partners. So they do all of the regulatory compliance, you know, legal compliance and whatnot, banking relationships, um, and get all that approval. And Biddy had been working on this for a couple of years. Um, they've, okay. they've always been a, a broker, like a, you know, buy sell provider, but, um, the ability to do it with no KYC at these really good limits, you know, like five grand a day, um, was something they've been working on for a while and they got it approved and now it's, it's available all throughout, throughout Europe. So they're one of our partners. Um, Another one, Cefalo, covers some of the Nordic countries of Denmark and Sweden. Yeah, methods over there. But, um, and there's a few others that I'm forgetting. Yeah. Moonpay covers Apple Pay and a few others. Uh, so you passed with flying colors there in, in talking about those exchanges. Uh, I want to talk about the uh, security that you talked about and securing a user's data because I've always been super interested. Uh, I think we are getting to the point now where uh, most people uh, want their data secured. I think at, at, at a certain point, maybe uh, before the, the Facebook hacks and before a lot of these uh, very popular hacks that have happened and made their way to mainstream media, nobody really cared. I think now people are right, starting right. to care. So, so you guys offering that secure, uh, securing data service is, is a great way to, to attract users. Yep. But I really want to get onto the next portion where uh, users can start selling the data. You always hear like, that's the next step, right? You can start, uh, you know, selling the data yourself. So I, I want, data. yeah, I want to, I want to hear about that. So we're not facilitating the selling of your own data to someone else. We're facilitating the securing of your own data such that only the end user can see it. And I think this is this whole concept of data sovereignty. We can go on this down this rabbit hole for quite some time. The concept of data sovereignty is is a debatable topic on what it even means. So there's many companies that that will say, "Hey, our product allows you to own your own data," but they are the hundred percent repository. It's held on their servers. They can see it, and they're just simply saying they're promising that they won't sell it, and that they're promising that they'll secure it. That if someone gets into their system, that they won't have access to it. Um, but they're not, the ownership is very, very squishy there. Like, what does it mean that you own your data if they're still the ones holding it? What we provide is a tech that makes it such that only person that can see it is the end user. They're the only ones that have the keys, the password to decrypt the data. So even if that data gets bounced around in different parts of the internet on different servers, it's only the user on their device that can decrypt the data. That's a key piece of ownership by our definition in the sense that you own it because nobody else can basically no one else can see it. Now, whether or not you choose to share it with someone else once you've decrypted that data, such as these private keys, is entirely up to you. And our app doesn't really facilitate that. Like you could open and show your private key inside of Edge. You could literally write it down and give it to someone else, but it's not something that we facilitate. It's it's meant as just a way to show that, hey, here's your key. If you need to use it in another application, you can. Um, I, I am of the strong opinion. I think a lot of people are frustrated and concerned about their data because brands like Facebook have been hacked and and have had privacy issues. But fundamentally, I think data security and data ownership, um, the ability to fix that is strongly dependent on the type of product you're using. I don't think a Facebook or a competitor to Facebook will ever offer the same product as Facebook and actually be any more secure, period, done. Like um, I'm going to, I'm going to throw a, a fastball at, at these guys, but Blockstack, um, many people are fascinated by that project and how it can revolutionize the internet. 
and they and they put Facebook in their crosshairs. It's like, hey, let's take back ownership of our data. Let's build a decentralized Facebook. Um, I'll take a stance and say that that'll never happen. Right. The 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 problem with data security is that as soon as more people have to access it, it's inherently less secure. And the whole point of social media is to share, right? You, you want to share this data. Now, you might want to share it with a limited number of people, but generally speaking, you want it to be a larger amount of people than less. That's the whole point of social media. Like we get on Twitter, we get on Facebook, we post something, we want there to be a lot of thumbs up, we want there to be a, like, a lot of likes, and we want to have a lot of friends. That's the general trend of that. And so what you're putting on those platforms generally speaking, shouldn't be something you consider to be private and secure. But now let's look at other apps that uses the security model of Facebook, but without us actually wanting it to be that open. So a lot of apps have just gone to the cloud. Google Drive, right? Google Docs, spreadsheets, um, Asana, which is the task management system, even QuickBooks and Quicken, financial transactions. Those used to be apps that you ran on your computer and you literally saved a .qbo file, and if you wanted to share it with someone next to you, you had to put in a thumb drive, save the file, you know, give it to someone else, give it to your accountant in order to do your taxes. That went to the cloud, but now Intuit sees everything. They see all your transactional information, and if someone compromised Intuit, they'd see all of your transactional information as well. We never intend that to be shared. We never wanted it to get a lot of thumbs up and likes. So why are we using that kind of cloud infrastructure Instead, we could use one where we encrypt all that data client-side, and it's only available to be decrypted by other people that also have the keys to decrypt that data. So we're sh we can use the cloud but not trust it. Or we're sharing encrypted data between a small number of people, maybe within a company, within a small business owner and the accountant. That's the future kind of private cloud that I envision happening. And it's something that we have had all the technology necessary to build it, but we never had good key management. That thing that made it super hard to use encrypted technology is that end users have never been able or never needed to handle keys until crypto. Yep. So I'm excited that crypto has created the need to handle keys and created products that make handling keys easier, such as what we built. And we can now build a suite of internet capable, you know, cloud utilizing apps that are still private to the user, but still feel like normal cloud-based apps, mobile, web, you name it. Yeah, yeah I think like, uh, you know, just uh, my own opinion, why is certain uh, software companies went into the cloud because uh, pirating uh, these the software was huge. And, um, you know, a lot of people would download these things on their computer without paying for the product. And uh, so they start maybe switching to the cloud, um, you know, to have it. That is a part of it. Yeah. But I completely agree with you, you know, with everything you said in terms of uh, privacy for, for the data, you know, that, that definitely compromises it. Um, now, in terms of like, uh, you know, the, the end user, when they're, you, you mentioned, when they sign up for your wallet, you know, it's pretty easy, right, to, to sign up for it, right? Do they, they don't have to manage their keys, right? It's, it's done on the back end, right? So it's the user uh, uh, interface is, is pretty straightforward, friendly, right? Because, you know, we know that the barrier for entry for a lot of people um, is that, you know, they have to manage the keys. They have to mm -hmm. do much of these steps before they can actually, you know, get crypto stored safely and so on. So the barrier has been there, uh, for a while. So from, from, for your wallet, it seems like it's, it's pretty easy to set that up without, you know, having too much hassle. Like how fast can I register, you know, my wallet, like get it running as fast as you can create a username, password and a pin. And that's, oh. that's basically it. 
And so with that, what happens is you basically get this encrypted account, which is a bucket, an encrypted bucket of data that the app can put things into and read from. And so the most important thing that the Edge app puts into this encrypted bucket are keys. And whenever you create a wallet inside of Edge, each of those wallet is each of those wallets are actually different master private keys, like a different set of 24 words, if that currency supports 24 words. And then it puts that into that encrypted bucket, it encrypts it, and then it backs it up onto the server. If you log in on another device, it downloads it and then decrypts it onto your other device. And the nice thing is because we use an encrypted bucket versus using just 12 words for one wallet that you have to derive everything from, right? the nice thing about having an encrypted bucket is we can put more than keys in there. We can put in transaction metadata. And that's another powerful feature we've had since the early days of Airbits is that when you send a transaction, you can tag it with a little bit of metadata, such as who you paid, what was it for, you know, category. And, and we automatically tag the fiat value at the time the transaction was made. As oh, long wow. as we have an exchange rate at the time it gets tagged. And that gets encrypted and also backed up. You log in another device, it gets downloaded and then decrypted. And you see all that transaction metadata. And this just does not exist in the world of kind of wallets. And you just don't see that kind of rich functionality. And then you can also export that to put it into like QuickBooks, QuickIn and whatnot, or a CSV file. Um, and that, that bucket of data also lets you do one thing that we also don't see in any other wallet is that if you were to import private keys into Edge, they all get in, put into that same bucket. You know, there's another wallet that you have only one master private key and that's it, right? You're stuck. That says one master private key, you derive your Ether, your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin Cash Dash, whatnot from there. But say you generate a one in another wallet, you want to bring it in. If you do that, you have to replace the one that's already there and then the other one's gone. Uh-huh. Right? You kind of get one key at a time. Then there's others where you can have two or three to four or five keys, but they all now have to be backed up. And so if you switch phones, Loading up your new phone is literally entering 12 or 24 words or a random string for each wallet that you had in the original device onto another. And that, that nightmare will just continue forever and ever. Whereas we're able to take that whole bundle, encrypted it as a bundle, just like a password manager. Edge is basically a fancy password manager with the ability to talk to blockchains. Right? <laughs> Everyone says, use a password manager, use a password manager. Well, that's what we are, except that the passwords are private keys. So. And, and we actually aim to launch a real password manager that allows you to use the same account you have at Edge to secure both your passwords and your private keys. Yeah, while you were talking there, it, it, I was going to ask a question of uh, essentially you guys are like LastPass. So I'm glad that you guys, or that you pointed yeah. that out there. Um, how do you deal with, with having services uh, for uh, creating these accounts? And like you said, creating a wallet uh, with Edge is, is simply creating a password. Uh, and that's, that's obviously, um, you know, to, to lower the barrier for, for people who aren't familiar with crypto. How do you deal with uh, customer service issues that come along with maybe, maybe they lost that password and now they don't have access to their entire uh, vat of crypto wallets? Uh, and then, uh, and then, and then uh, along with that, uh, offering services like no KYC and then having customer service, how do those things interact together? So admittedly, when you cannot see anything inside of a user's account, you don't see the balances. We don't even see public addresses. We have no idea when someone receives money or sends money. It is harder. It is definitely harder. But that is the that is a trade-off we make to be able to give people their privacy and autonomy. And so whenever we have to service a user, we're having to ask them for whatever information we need. You know, a lot of times they go to us like, well, here's my username. Just go look. Like, well, we can't look. We can't <laughs> That's the whole so, point. Yeah, can you take a screenshot of this, take a screenshot of that? 
Um, mm. We have the ability for them to send us some logs and that tells us like network connectivity, if there's any errors. I know and sometimes a person will be on a network that is slow or poor and we'll see that in the log. Like, you know, hey, I'm not seeing this new transaction. Well, it's because it looks like the network's, you know, not, not connecting to the blockchain networks very well. And so, yeah, it is definitely much, much harder um, to address the concern of like, you know, when people say, oh, it happens if I lose my password or whatnot. That is a, uh, an entire era of building what we call human understanding product. Like making sure that the human, is, the imperfection of a human is understood when building the product. And so we do every, everything we can to make sure, number one, the user remembers the password, which is, first of all, having password reminders when people log into the app with steady decay on frequency. So, for example, you create your account, you log in the second time, you just, you're just in, you log in the third, you log in the third time, well, there's going to be a reminder, please enter your password. Do you remember it? If you don't, go and you can change it now. You know, click on this button, you can actually change it to something that you remember. Um, and if they do enter it correctly, it starts to, you know, not require it over time, over time, over time. Because you can log in with biometric and PIN. That's what most people use. They don't enter the full password because that's going to be inconvenient. So keeping reminders of that. Uh, secondary, we do have a password recovery capability, but it does have to be set up. And so that's something that they that we have the user set up we, you know, when they log in and they've received some amount of money that we think is you know, a tangible amount. I think it's like 20, somewhere between 20 and $50. Um, and once they, once they set up password recovery, you know, that becomes another out for them. Right? And a lot of people save their account through that. Like they go through password recovery and it's, and it's email they send themselves and some questions and answers that they set up, all of which are fully private. Edge does not see any of the questions and then we don't see any of the answers. Um, we've got a great little white paper that describes how it, how it works and it's been approved and audited um, by some security folk. So that's another out. Um, a third, which is we save kind of as a very, very last resort, is that usually a person knows a good inkling of what their password is. Right? And given enough tries, they can brute force it. Many actually have successfully done that by just waiting long enough. Like, you know, they give it a few tries, they get timed out, and wait a few more. And then with like a month or two, they literally do get in. Um, uh, another mechanism is you can have a third-party service brute force it with really fast computers. But you do have to have um, the encrypted file in hand. And that we, could, we can give to the user um, with a prolonged waiting period. So we can say, hey, here's your encrypted file. We don't know the password. We're not even going to try to brute force it. But you can give it to the service. They'll charge you a fee. But they'll only try if you have an inkling of what it is. Like, oh, it's got some of these letters. It's got some of this. It's got some of these words. And they'll try a bunch of different combinations uh, to brute force it. Um, and we'll only give that file to the user if their account has not been touched in a couple months, proving that, like, you know, someone isn't actively using the account successfully. Um, and so once they have that, they can have a third-party service try to get in. And that third-party service has been around since 2012, 2013. Um, proving that they're both one, um, reputable, number two, successful in helping people. Yeah. So through that, uh, a lot of people, the vast majority have had the ability to recover uh, their account, which is far more forgiving than if you just literally forgot to back up your, you, you forget that you don't write those 12 words down, you're dead. There is nothing you can do at all, right? Whereas we have this gradient of, yes, you can be absolutely as stupid as possible. Like, you know, I'll call it stupid, just, you know, you, forgetful you mess up yeah, yeah. and you absolutely don't recall what it is you have no clue what you put in as your password um then yes you could still lose your money 
Um, but we try to give people multiple outs, multiple ways to have um, not forgotten and not, and not lost their, their mm. password. And I think that's the best you can do. I mean, even your Gmail account is not recoverable. People don't know this, but you cannot recover even with some of these centralized services unless you have some other backup mechanism put in place. So people think that, oh, everything is recoverable. That's not actually true. Not exactly true. Gmail isn't going to give just anybody access to, to an account if you forget a password unless you have some other backup mechanism you've set up ahead of time. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to jump in front of Dima here. Dima, do you have a question? Because I, I love this philosophical debate of, of, you know, some people in crypto believe, uh, you know, we're, we're probably in the top 10% of, of, and I don't want to say top, but the first 10% of people who uh, enjoy their self-sovereignty and, and want to use these tools to become more self-sovereign. But there's a lot of people uh, that think that they want someone else to custody their assets. So do you think that that will, that will ever come to a point where, uh, you know, m- a majority of people will want self-sovereignty uh, or, or, you know, I just want the exchange to hold my, my tokens. I think there's always going to be people that will want self-sovereignty of um, their tokens like we do, but then the people, so here's my take on the people that want someone else to deal with it. They're going to want someone else to deal with it for as long as that person is successful doing it without any issues, right? That's just the way we are. We're, we're kind of a, um, you know, we're a lazy, humans are in, in generally built to trend towards laziness. That's actually part of our, that's one of our strongest points. That sounds bad. That's Break that bad down, point. yeah. <laughs> so we're, we trend towards laziness, which is the same thing as saying we trend towards optimizing. I don't, I don't want to have to call a cab company and wait for 30 minutes and not know if they're coming I'm lazy. I want to push two buttons and someone show up at my door. So lazy versus optimizing are kind of one and the same. And because of that, it is much easier to trust somebody than it is for me to verify, right? The whole verify, you know, don't trust verify. That's the t-shirt slogan. It does not true. I highly, highly disagree with that. So I apologize if any of you are like the don't trust verify maximalist, but um, fundamentally I think as humans, we much prefer to trust and that's how we advance technology as a whole is, you know, I use a two by four, I get at home Depot. Do I verify that that thing actually is going to hold a certain amount of weight? No, I trust that it does. If I had to verify every two by four that I bought as a carpenter, I wouldn't get anything done. Right? <laughs> I wouldn't get shit done. I, the house never get built, never build that cabinet. So trust is required to, to elevate speed and, and efficiency. Now the question is, can you make it where the person that you're trusting is motivated to trust you? I'm sorry, is motivated to not break their trust. That to me is what's cool about crypto is that, yeah, you got to trust these people, but they're motivated to, to not break your trust. That, that to me is kind of uh, what's interesting and in what our ecosystem has built. And so, yes, people will still continue to trust until that trust is broken because it's either, either a security issue or a, um, a cost issue because it costs money to hold people's money. Right, you can't just hold people's money for free. It costs money to hold gold. It's going to cost money to hold crypto. And how do you then make up for that cost? Either charge people for it, which now he says, well, why do I pay five percent a year to someone to hold my money when I, I can hold it myself? I'll, I'll make that trade off. Um, or the other cost is what happened to gold. We trusted people to hold gold, and when they held it, they issued us IOUs, form of paper, and then suddenly the paper unpegged from the underlying asset. There's no reason to believe that that won't happen again with crypto. It's like, sure, I'll trust you to hold it. You have to give me an IOU. But at some point, there's no reason that IOU has to map one-to-one with the underlying asset. We're always seeing that with something like, oh, like possibly Tether, 
and yeah. other coins that are backed. You just yeah. you don't really know. Um, and, and they're not motivated to, to keep that underlying asset one-to-one. That's the problem with that system is that the, there's the trust, but there's also a, a good reason to break the trust. There's a strong, strong financial motivator to break that trust. Um, and so I think it'll continue for a foreseeable future. I think it'll continue for traders that need really fast order matching and trading. They'll stay with custodial services. But I venture to say that you won't see anything that would call themselves a wallet that is custodial in like five, five to 10 years. Like custodial service will be the high frequency, you know, not high frequency, but faster trading type services. And, you know, the, the custodial apps, and those are already starting to fade away. Like, like Zappo used to be a wallet. Zappo used to be huge. Right? Yeah. Used to be huge, but they would call themselves a wallet, fully custodial. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coinbase, their mobile app was kind of called Coinbase wallet. Now they have a non-custodial version of it. Right? I think the custodial wallets go away. And they'll just be simply exchange services, financial products, like loans and whatnot. Um, and the, the people that need those types of services, like leverage trading, is hard to do um, in a non-custodial way. It's doable, but it's hard. That's what those services are going to stick with. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And, you know, like you mentioned, you know, the trust is going to be there until we have a major issue, you know, like, Gox, you know, like, or these hacks that happen, right? And then people are like, oh, wow, well, we've trusted these, you know, exchanges, these platforms, and now, we, you know, we lost, uh, you know, a bunch of money. So, and, and then, right, you know, right. from that point on, you know, people are going to start uh, transitioning into more secure, um, you know, wallets and so on. So that's fascinating. So, so for you all right now, um, how many uh, crypto pairs do you offer right now? Uh, the total, and then, um, also, how do you guys decide on like which ones you put on uh, your wallet uh, yeah, or so not? We've got the we've got the top ten cryptos by market cap. Um, probably half of the top twenty. So like Monero is one of the very uh, one of the ones that we have that very few other apps have. Um, Stellar XRP, those are all in the top ten. Dash, um, I can't remember all of them. Tezos was recently added. BNB was recently added. Though that's also in the top. That's also top ten. Um, and a handful of like uh, of how many you offer? Do you do you so? Not counting tokens, probably like maybe fifteen or so, mm-hmm. like actual main main chain uh, main chain coins. I think around that. Uh, don't hold mm-hmm. me to it. Um, mm-hmm. Including tokens, you know, plus thirty tokens are are technologically easy, um, but they can be challenging to assess. <laughs> you know, like okay, what is this token demand for? But I'd say the number one metric is user demand. That's definitely the, the number one metric is whether or not we add something as a user demand. Number two is effort involved, right? So what's the effort involved in getting this thing added? And then number three, which usually lines up with, with number one, is since we define our app as, as an exchange. So maybe people say, oh, Edge, Edge Wallet, you know, do you have Edge Wallet, blah, blah, blah. Um, really, our, our product is called Edge, and its functionality is, is as an exchange. So we want to add assets that have some, that have exchange capability with our underlying partners. Mm-hmm. Right. And so early on, we added assets. We didn't have a lot of exchange partners. And so, you know, we couldn't really have that requirement. Right? We had very limited exchange capabilities. So we have some assets that don't have exchange capabilities, but that's going to be a major, a major, um, major decision factor. Say, what do we think we're going to do? People are going to be want to buy, sell, and trade. Um, and that, that's the primary thing. Some are just much harder to implement as well. So if the engineering effort's high, then we may hold off on it. 
where is there a way to like submit an interest for let's say an, a token to be added to a wallet or how do people kind of contact uh um you know to, to uh, yeah show? right on i think right on our page is a list of the assets that we currently support and then there's a link to say hey you know submit a request for for something else and, and then, that, you know, that's how you judge that. user demand uh that as well as you know what we see on twitter what we see on facebook um uh, people emailing us directly. Uh, we have a live Q and A every week. People chime in there sometimes about user demand for not just protocols but features, like you know naming. Like ENS came up as a as a feature request a couple times. You know, things like that. So it's it's a very subjective, vague thing. You know, user demand is a very subjective thing, and we can't give a hard line number to it. We start getting a gauge of what people are interested in based on the various avenues when you talk to people at conferences as well. Um, so yeah, I mean. But it's that definitely crossed with the the effort, time and energy effort of actually getting it. But some are easy and some are much harder. Now we've seen a, a obviously DeFi take over the space in the I guess past oh, yeah. year, twenty nineteen would be kind of the year of DeFi. So do you plan yeah. on offering any you know DeFi services uh, through uh, that that edge uh, wallet? So something like staking through the actual wallet itself. Uh, staking, we actually had that on our roadmap. We're we're going to go through a partner. Um, that unfortunately fell through for some, some reasons, some business reasons. Um, but we, depending on how you define DeFi, we already do it. Yeah. So yeah. we have decentralized exchange support inside of the app. We have support for compound, which is a DeFi protocol, right? It gives you, uh, interest bearing, like uh, basically an interest bearing account. And with an edge, you can go and convert just about any asset into one of the compound tokens and get interest. So it's interesting to define the support of DeFi um, in many ways. If it's as simple as just simply exchanging one token for another and getting the benefit of whatever that DeFi product is, then yeah, we already support it. Um, so um, whether or not we'll have more complicated, complex things um, yet to be seen, we haven't announced anything. I'll say the one thing that strongly interests me though in the DeFi space is to be able to do leverage trading because it fits well with the definition of our, pro of our product as an exchange. So I'd love to be able to have a DeFi product where I can send some DAI into this contract and then take out, you know, a Forex leverage position on Bitcoin. Right? Just right. the price of Bitcoin. That I would, I would love to be able to offer inside of the product. And, you know, it goes through a smart contract. There's no counterparty in this. It's just you and the blockchain. That would be awesome. Would fit the product definition really well. And I feel like the interface would be relatively simple too, right? There's not a whole lot of complexity in that in, in, in the potential interface for that. That, that sounds awesome. And in terms of uh, just like the pricing that you guys uh, get from your partners, you know, if, let's say, you know, if I want to convert like BTC to ETH, you know, um, right, right. Uh, like how is this, you know, is it, is it the spot price or is there a markup uh, that the, the partners charge? You know, you guys charging the markup, you know, or it, are you, like if I'm converting BTC, uh, am I only working with one partner? Let's say Changeling, you know, and um, that's it for BTC. Or do you pull pricing maybe quotes from multiple partners and get like the best rate? You know, uh, what is kind of behind there? Dimitri, awesome that you asked this question. It's like threw me an awesome softball here. So of those <laughs> 16 partners that I mentioned, um, eight of them are specifically for crypto to crypto. Um, and we as Edge, we have a cut, obviously, of the, of the exchange fees we get a flat 50 basis points. So half a percent across all of the um, exchanges on crypto to crypto. After that, 
our partner charges whatever they need to plus the spread of whatever they need to, to be able to cover that swap. Um, And we put out order quotes across all of them. Anytime you want to do a swap. So you say one of Bitcoin to ether, uh, a quote request goes out to all eight partners and whoever can service it gets returned. And whoever has the best price is what's shown to you automatically. You don't have to deal with choosing. Cause I remember having to use like, Oh, change doesn't support this currency pair. Let me go to change now. And oh, they support it, but you know the limits are here. And I got to go to this other partner, you know, and it was just a mess, right? And, and sometimes they support it, they support how much I want, but they just happen to be out of money that day, right? And, and I remember yeah. that happened a lot to Shapeshift, where you sure uh, yep. I remember that. But it was just like, sorry, not available today. And having to bounce around to the different products was just such a pain in the ass. And so we said, okay, great, we're just going to build this thing that actually can aggregate all of them into these plugins. And actually a lot of our partners write their own plugin into Edge. The little block of code that knows how to talk to their API. Um, get added and effectively benefit to the user. Just goes out to all of them at once. It gets you the best price. Some of them are fixed and some of them are variable quotes. We actually also prefer the fixed quote. So mm-hmm. if you can get a fixed quote, whoever can provide the best fixed quote price is what gets presented to you for mm-hmm. the amount that you want. You know, that's so, awesome. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a great I- interface in that regard. I've been looking forward to seeing this in crypto for quite some time because, you know, we have products, you know, where they just pull one price and, you know, quote from one, one source. It's one limited liquidity there, you know, and right. then you stuck just without whatever spread is there, but offering uh, clients that competitive rate from multiple LPs, which essentially, you know, creates this competitiveness, you know, in that industry oh, totally. of to provide the best rate and, you know, for the user base, which is like amazing. This is actually, um, I, I was in Forex before I got into crypto. So in Forex, we had a platform where we pull, you know, rates from multiple LPs to give the best pricing um, for, for the traders. So that's why uh, that question itself is, you know, very interesting for me. And I always ask that, um, you know, to, to see how you guys handling that side of it. No, exactly what you had mentioned. And what's unique is a lot of people say, oh, you're doing the price aggregation. So, you know, do you have to, do we as a company open accounts with all of these, these partners and have to hold liquidity with them? We go, no, 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 no. We connect the user directly to those providers. We don't even see the order requests. I had to go mm-hmm. directly to them. So we're not a middleman or counterparty in any way, shape or form the way most Forex and crypto aggregators yeah, are. Yeah. Most of them, they are, they are a middleman. And so like one service, and this is not, that's not a bad thing. Like one service that, you know, I've used in the past S Fox um, mm-hmm. to buy and sell Bitcoin. You know, they've got your normal or traders interface, but basically they take your money and then they have their money deposited on like a, on, on Coinbase and I mean, either Coinbase pro and Bitfinex and Bitstamp. And they try to find the best price for the trade. Mm-hmm. Whereas we connect you directly with those services. And so that gives you much broader range of pairs supported. That's one thing, obviously the best price. And the one thing that we, one of the biggest reasons we did it actually independent of that was it actually gave us better reliability, you know, cause sometimes just the services just down like maintenance and whatnot. Um, we had some reliability issues with, you know, our first partner and it was noticeable. Like our volumes just dropped on those days when they had bugs and issues. Um, and so now a reliability issue with one partner generally just falls back to another. So that's, that's probably the biggest benefit that we've had is that we've, we've kept our numbers stable versus like, oh no, partners down, you know, yeah. those volumes and also bad user experience for the users. Um, and so, yeah, we're very happy with that implementation. Hopefully that answers your question. We, we take a flat 50 basis points. What we notice that our partners take is anywhere from about 25 
basis to another 50. And if the coin isn't very liquid, then you'll just see a, a large spread. That, right. That makes not much you can do about that. Right. Even if they don't make any money on that. You know, from the fiat side, there's a bigger range of differences. We don't, we don't price shop in fiat because you know, they have so many different trade-offs. Like how quickly does it settle? What payment method, what country are you in? You know, so we basically, you just say what country you're in inside of edge. It shows you the different payment methods that you can use for buying or selling. And then it connects you to the appropriate partner. So you, we've kind of taken a deep dive in, into the products that you guys offer and, and services uh, and, and, gave, and you've given phenomenal explanations. And I think, you know, partly from a user standpoint, I like to understand the ethos of uh, where that founder or where the CEO uh, is coming from. And you've also answered those questions, but you do have to answer me this. With your background in NVIDIA, how did you not end up starting a mining farm or something of that nature? How did you end up doing uh, Airbits and, instead of uh, starting up your own mining firm? So, uh, number one, when I started in 2013, NVIDIA had the crappy graphics cards for mine. <laughs> so that was one thing. And number two, I think I went to like a quick, you know, I, I did the quick calculation of cost to mine uh, equipment, the rise in, in hash rate. And it took about 15 minutes to determine like, well, there's no way I would be, I would be profitable. Like mining is a, is a zero sum game. And most people, it's, it's, I call it, it's like an iceberg. Like everyone, everyone joining in mining is, is part of this iceberg and only the top are actually profitable. Everyone else is losing money. And this is true even as far back as, uh, actually as far back as Bitcoin. From the moment Bitcoin existed, most people mining were not profitable. And the only profit that they could have made is from the increase in value of Bitcoin. Like if you just took the amount that they mined at the time that they mined it in dollars, Almost certainly, they lost money for, whether in, uh, in comparison to just simply buying Bitcoin. So you have that iceberg image, but uh, can you give us any numbers? What, what percentage of miners do you believe are actually not profitable? And, what, and I guess they're waiting for price appreciation, but... Yeah, I guess the... Admittedly, I can't give a, a hard number. And so yeah. I fault myself for not having clear-cut numbers. However, the, the people that I know that are mining on an individual non, not an enterprise level where they've built out massive uh, mining rigs, every single one of them uh, that I've personally met that as an individual miner um, has told me that they were not profitable without the increase in value. You know, and that's easily and probably that's exceeded about 200 people that have inquired when they come up to me and says, yeah, I'm a miner. Yeah, I mind. Yeah, I mind. And I go, okay, would you be profitable if it didn't, if pricing up there? No. Interesting. Either quickly or they come back to me and say, no, I wouldn't have been. <laughs> and so um, does that mean that probably a lot of the hashing power is potentially profitable, but definitely not at the individual level. So individual miners, they just don't have the economies of scale. Mining caters to economies of scale in many ways, shapes and forms. And it's probably one of the criticisms of proof of work is that the people who, you know, successful at it um, need to have economies of scale, have to have access to cheap hardware cheap electricity, and to some degree even cheap labor to man the equipment. Um, whereas proof of stake has its own, has other issues, but it has a, once you bootstrap the system, which is an issue of proof of stake, but once you have that system bootstrapped, then you don't get any economies of scale. So if you have one token, you have exactly 1% of the benefit of someone who has 100 tokens, as long as you have enough to stake, right? That's, that you have the pretty much, unless the, unless the, protocol deems otherwise and it gives you an actual benefit of having more tokens but generally the protocols can make it very linear and pro rata 
Yeah, I love that uh, debate between proof of work and proof of stake. And, and to be honest, bootstrapping and proof of work network is just as hard. Uh, you, you you can still get that centralization of tokens uh, out of Genesis block. Bitcoin just happened to, yeah. you know, uh, evolve. I it just guess, happened uh, yeah. to have lost the person that had all of the uh, <laughs> had all of the coins. Yeah. So therefore, the it's it's almost like the ICO founders basically went away. And never cashed out. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. We're yeah. we're we're from ICO alert, so we have a we're particularly fond of ICOs, even though they've become a, a dark term. Um, so uh, the second question, and, and I guess my last question would be, uh, you know, we we hear a lot about crypto and a lot about tech in that Northern California area, uh, but not a lot from Southern California. And I, I'm super interested to hear about what the crypto atmosphere is in Southern California and in San Diego. It's definitely a lot more chill. There's not as much. I mean, people are just enjoying life. <laughs> good weather i mean it's like the home of the triathlon people are outdoors they're you know being active um it, it's a different a different focus uh, more around quality of life than being you know a go-getter alpha personality build the next startup you know make a ton of money i mean there's a good number of wealthy people uh, in san diego but a lot of them are just kind of relaxing chilling admittedly kind of sitting on their money you know retirees and whatnot um i think the the demographic that has shown up that's interested in crypto tends to be more in that libertarian bend versus on the technical side whereas i think you see in san francisco you'll see a lot of people that are on the they're technically interested because they just come from the tech background where here you see people are kind of ideologically aligned with it not a lot of the developers um there are you know there are some projects that are that are here that are in development and you know do have their developer pool but it's definitely not as strong as like a, a silicon valley era um i can't speak too much of la um, I probably shouldn't say this too loud, but personally, that's like the one part of California I wouldn't live in. I love and love living here in San Diego. Um, LA is this weird like, uh, kind of vibe that I love to visit, but couldn't stay. What drives the people there? Uh, a little hard to, to pinpoint. Um, obviously, image is one thing and you know, money is, is an entire another thing. And Crypto can kind of give you both. And so that might be what's, what's the, what the community is like over there. Um, but yeah, for San Diego, it's definitely, it's, it's a bit of a quieter. If, if you had just, if you had just spoken those words and I didn't know where you were from, I'd know that you were from San Diego. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at least if you gave me the, the realm of, of California to, to do my guess. But yeah, that, I have to stop you because we do have Los Angeles uh, followers uh, on the I'm podcast. Sure <laughs> sure you do. I mean, who, which podcast that's, you know, worth anything doesn't have LA followers for sure. You know, like I said, I love visiting. I've got a lot of friends and I've got family, family over there, but uh, I definitely like the Northern and very, very Southern parts of the country. And I just uh, drive through and, you know, uh, I guess I, I get, I get from LA exactly what they build, which is entertainment, you know, living there, different story, but it's an entertaining place to visit and swing through. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of New York is for me like that. Uh, you know, I love New York with all oh, my heart, man. but uh, living there, you oh. know, I don't know. It's, it gets too crazy. Uh, so like, yeah, conferences like consensus. I've been there for the past several years. And after like a week, I'm like, I got to get out of here before I just become, yeah. like, you know, I just <laughs> yeah, exactly. got to unwind from, uh, from, from being over there. But you, you do feel the energy of the place. Like you're there. Absolutely. Oh my God. It's just like, there's so much to do and just get stuff done and let's, you know, let's network and know, find people and whatnot. And then, then you just got to unwind a little bit. It takes the toll. It, it, does, <laughs> it does take a toll on you a little bit. So, um, um so like yeah. Uh, good balance here. 
I guess, uh, yeah, the last question, um, you know, we can briefly talk about this is kind of what do you see, you know, in terms of just kind of broad market regulations, you know, with China that's going on right now. And, you know, is that, you think China is, you know, uh, regulations will benefit like token prices, Bitcoin and stuff, or they focus on blockchain or like US too, you know, we're kind of exploring now how to provide proper guidelines and, you know, promote or not promote these assets or whatnot, you know, what do you think of regulations? So my understanding of China has definitely been coming for a second hand, although we do have a couple of investors that are out of China and Hong Kong, so they can give us a bit of more insight. And so like classic case in point example is there was a conference that we were going to attend and, you know, one of our investors was one of the key um, contributors to that conference, but they specifically excluded companies from, presenting that have a product catered around trading cryptocurrencies. Oh, wow. Which is what we have, right? Mm. So we were excluded from being able to present there because of uh, the definition of our product. Whereas, you know, kind of blockchain uh, technology type of products were very open. So mm. I don't think that that's going to, that's changed much as much as people might've thought that, Oh my God, there's all these positive things coming out of the government about, you know, blockchain and they mentioned cryptocurrency. But I would gather to say that any mention of cryptocurrency is really not a mention of cryptocurrency as a currency, but crypto as a payment method of something like the RMB, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're using blockchain and cryptocurrency, much like a Libra, to be able to facilitate the, a payment mechanism of an existing currency. Mm-hmm. That they could call a cryptocurrency, but really it's a crypto payment method. Right. It's not, it's not a currency in of itself, much like even the Libra is barely a currency. Yeah. Um, much like any of the stable coins are barely a cryptocurrency. They are a crypto payment mechanism of an underlying currency. Um, and so that might be where the term cryptocurrency came out of the Chinese government, but where I would be careful in thinking that they're positive on the decentralized, you know, autonomous, uh, sovereign cryptocurrencies as a whole, but more blockchain technology and tokenized assets might be what's more interesting to them. And it doesn't look like they're, they're, the easy, they're easing at all on, on the clampdown on companies that are offering you know, more cryptocurrency-like solutions. Yeah, based on uh, them banning uh, people who are offering trading services, it seems to me like China doesn't want to see money flow out of their economy into others. And uh, certainly certainly, cryptocurrency offers that. So uh, that's that's my uh, tinfoil hat. I talked about it a little bit. Uh, on this podcast, but uh, yeah, Demon, did you have anything else before we uh, we got off here? I thought we had a great conversation here. Uh, obviously, we wanna we wanna go out with uh, where uh, our listeners can can find all about Edge, all about yourself, Paul. Uh, uh, so please do so now. Uh, cool. So if anyone's interested, best place is our simple website at Edge app, and there you can get to our Twitter link, which is Edge app. Um, or Edge Wallet, actually, in our Facebook, Edge app, and all the different spots. And you can contact me on Twitter as well. I'm at Pollinator with two L's, you know, P-A-U-L-L-I-N-A-T-O-R. But really, for the viewpoint of the product, Edge app will get you to wherever you, you need to download the app, get information, read our white paper, see what assets are supported, recommend assets, uh, you name it. Please send us feedback. Uh, we do have a live you know, video podcast every Friday, 12 p.m. Pacific time. We've been asked questions live to some of the folks that are, you know, in the company. I'm usually on there unless I'm out of town. And so we want to connect with people, get their feedback and let us know what they, what they enjoy and what they want to see. 
you'll be seeing the uh, layer one podcast in your, in your comments section this week. I saw that you guys were doing that uh, YouTube channel, but uh, last thing uh, we have been doing a feature where we ask uh, our guests about a book recommendation uh, that could be of any category, any genre. Uh, Do you have one off the top of your head? Oh gosh, depends on the person, but two that most pop into mind um, would be uh, born to run. Um, That one kind of describes the, actually that one, lends itself well to what we were talking about earlier where I say that humans are lazy and that we optimize that book. A good section of the book talks about the, the, the difference between humans and Neanderthals and how we were both dumber and weaker and slower, but we survived because we were, we were more efficient. (laughs) Interesting. we're, We're one of the most efficient runners on this earth we can't run really fast. Like we can't outrun a cheetah, um, but we can run for a really long period of time because we can gate our energy burn. Hmm. But in that sense, because we're so efficient, we're also lazy. We don't want to run if we don't need to. <laughs> that's burning energy, right? That's burning yeah, energy. You need to save your energy. Yeah, save yeah. your energy, exactly, which is why we're lazy asses. And so that book was fascinating. It fits so well into my um, theory of how we act and how we build technology and how we behave, in, even in the crypto world right? And how we want to trust people. So born to run being one. And then maybe this leads a little bit to kind of our ethos of uh, connecting with the end user and to the customers and customer service and whatnot. But um, delivering happiness is another great one um, by the former CEO of the Zappos. Um, oh, wow. That, that talks about his entire life experience from childhood to founding Zappos and all the startups in between and talks about stories of how he built the culture of customer service at the company, which barely exists today. You know, Amazon's acquired them and whatnot. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, they, uh, an interesting story from that book and also some friends that used to work in Zappos is, you know, you, you hear about like McDonald's where they say they, they record how long it takes to service an average customer trying to get that time down as low and low and mm-hmm. low as possible. Right. Get it down to 20 seconds. Boom. Next customer, 20 seconds. Boom. Next customer at Zappos. They would have like monthly meetings and people would take pride in how long they could spend on the phone with a customer doing customer service. Talk to them about their European trip. Like, oh, that jacket you tore, how'd that happen? Oh my God, you were on you were on that bridge and it was windy. I was there too. They would brag about it and like take snippets of their phone call with customers and show it to the company. And so while that might be one total extreme, it's a fascinating story of how you can take what the the world thinks is the standard by which you build a company and how you define metrics and completely invert it and still be successful. 